Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Scott Tobias. And Tasha Robinson. Jenny Kosky is not with us. She is on another coast, unfortunately, and we hope to visit her at holidays. In our last episode, we discussed Robert Benton's Best Picture winning 1979 film Kramer vs. Kramer, a wrenching drama that freezes in time and airs concern about the state of the American marriage. Released 40 years later, Marriage Story doesn't carry quite the same burden. As the movie itself depicts, divorce hasn't gotten easier, but it has grown less novel. Over the course of Baumbach's film, both Nicole, an actress played by Scarlett Johansson, and her husband Charlie, a playwright and theater director played by Adam Driver, learn about the culture, rituals, and mechanisms that have grown up around the industry of divorce. She wants to live in California. He sees them as a New York family. To find a compromise between these seemingly incompatible goals, they surround themselves with lawyers, family, and friends, none of whom have much interest in depicting the other side as anything but the bad guy in the process. As the couple sinks deeper into their camps, any remaining connection between them starts to fray. And as they grow increasingly determined to win the case, the chances that they'll find a resolution in the best interest of their eight-year-old son, Henry, becomes more distant. To depict this, Bombach keeps the focus on the drama's key moments, an attempt at normality when Charlie visits Nicole's family in California, visits to lawyers who offer pragmatic but borderline heartless advice about how to proceed, a one-on-one confrontation that begins civilly and ends in screamed in tears, and, in the end, a few fleeting moments of grace and understanding. We'll talk it all over after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Charlie and I are getting a divorce, Mom. You can't be friends with him anymore. Gina! Charlie Bird! (laughs) Mom? (laughs) Mom? What? You know, most people in my business, you're just transactions to them. I like to think of you as people. Oh, okay, good. You remind me of myself on my second marriage. Baby, I'm amazed the way you love me all the time. Part of what we're gonna do together is tell your story. Did you dye your hair again? No, this is me. You don't like it? Is it shorter? I prefer it longer, but... How are you doing? If we start from a place of reasonable and they start from a place of crazy, when we settle, we'll be somewhere between reasonable and crazy. All right. What are everyone's first impressions? I was, I'll just say, I, I was, I thought it's a remarkable film. How does everybody else feel? I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's Bombach's best movie. It's one of the best films I've seen this year. It's so full of insight and humor and it's uh, and heartbreak. But I think what, one of the things that really impresses me about it is I think it's full of optimism mm-hmm. and a quite different attitude about divorce and the result of divorce than you got out of The Squid and the Whale, which seems like a, kind of its companion piece in a way from much earlier. I think Baumbach has gotten to a point where he understands divorce as certainly a painful process, but also a catalyst for change and a change that is not ultimately unwelcome uh, without its benefits and without resolutions that can help a person grow and become better and happier. So I, I don't know. There's something, I, It's funny people talk about how wrenching this film is, and I think I would agree. It is a very emotional film. It's a film that kills me on several different scenes, but I come out of it feeling kind of good. 
it's kind of a feel good movie for me. I don't know because uh, I think I think the attitude of the movie is constructive and positive, and I think it's and I think that's part of it is Baumbach's changed perspective, and it's and it's also just the fullness of these characters in the world that he's built for them and that the actors have built as well. It took me a while to warm to this film. Um, It's more than two hours long, two hours 15. And it's parts of it are grueling. And parts of it feel a little stagey to me, a little much like with uh, Kramer versus Kramer, a little calculated for for injustice and misery and, and strong feeling, sometimes a little seemingly at the expense of human feeling but it got the way it builds i think is just masterful i'm scott and i've argued about the whole bombax best film thing i i will cede nothing to my love for the squid and the whale yeah but it's great it's like my second favorite so it's it's fine it's it's not very much of an argument but yeah by the time you get to the end of this story and the point where adam driver is is singing a Mm. song from company to his friends and it becomes like a statement of purpose and a statement of life i mean i cried in the theater at tiff i i was in that mode of all right it's it's yet another movie that i'm jamming into my eyeballs and my brain and then that moment was the moment that i thought about for the next three months i the, think the being alive the being alive yeah, oh singing sequence yeah so it reflected the rest of the movie back at me in just a, a completely different light like the vividness of it and the just sort of the construction of the emotions and I'm still waiting for it to be uh, to feel less raw so I can uh, go back and watch it again. But I think it has flaws that we're going to talk about. But I also think it's just very powerfully acted. And boy, does, is it emotional. Boy, is it effective as an emotional story. I feel like they know what they have with this movie, too. Like at the publicity screening we saw, I, I got a little uh, Merit Story branded container Kleenex. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, there's a quote we, we've had before, the Howard Hawks quote about how a good movie is three great scenes and, and no bad ones. This is... This is like one great scene after another. I feel like there's just one kind of perfect, self-contained, beautifully constructed scene kind of stacked on top of another until it forms like this really coherent piece of storytelling. It, it's it's remarkable. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a Bombeck fan. I don't know if it's, is it my favorite of his? I don't know. Uh, but it's certainly way up there. It's a, quite an achievement. And it's a little bit of a, you know, we were talking before, a little bit of a departure form in terms of style. There's a, yeah. It is, and, and I think that's, not to bring it in too early, but I think there might be a little bit of Kramer versus Kramer inf- influence there where, where there is sort of the matter of letting scenes play out and, you know, not uh, rushing anything uh, and just kind of living in the moment. Yeah, and, and there's just kind of a, a real swing for the fences. I mm-hmm. mean, it, it, that isn't really in the Baumbach way i mean i think he's he's somebody who's who likes to just kind of get into the the dirt of things and isn't somebody who's going to give you a story on this scale i mean i mean it's it's a personal intimate story but it's on a big canvas i mean it's across two coasts and it's uh, 135 minutes long and it has some pretty big set pieces in it so it's a much it's a different film for him in that respect and I can I can tell you you mentioned the the whole three great scenes and no bad scenes. I mean I think there's plenty of great scenes in the movie, but I can tell you what the three great scenes <laughs> in sure. the movie are. Oh. One is is the scene the first scene with Scarlett Johansson and Laura Dern in uh, Laura Dern's office. These are the long scenes too, right? Mm-hmm. Where Nicole goes over the whole story of her marriage basically and why she's gotten to this place where she needs a divorce, and all that's beautifully handled and, and affecting. And it's just a wonderful dynamic between. Johansson and, and Laura Dern, who's just like such an MVP in almost everything she does. She's so funny and and so sharp in this movie. And also she has, I think, the key line in the film, which is telling her client that what she's doing is an act of hope. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really, really smart and kind of something that she says is a sales pitch, which is actually kind of sincere. The second scene is, uh, of course, the big showdown in his apartment in Los Angeles, where they've been through all of this confrontation already and they're just kind of try to figure out how to maybe go back to dealing with things on their own and they can't (laughs) and it just ends at these bitter recriminations and tears and and it gets something particularly out of adam driver that i just it's almost historic (laughs) like it's like it would be a performance in a moment that will just that's going to be talked about forever i think and then of course being alive which is so powerful i spent a lot of this week just kind of like looking at old other performances of that song <laughs> you know first in the, the soundtrack recording of company which was the original a, cast album the original cast album which was the uh, da pennebaker film and i saw bernadette peters do a version i saw another sondheim tribute version that i think a lot of people feels like the definitive version but i tell you you know the emotional context of 
this movie and then the fact that what is being expressed is so much comes out of character uh, makes the driver performance the most powerful mm. <laughs> because it's such it, you know you've been through hell to quote the lyrics with him and, and um you know his his resolve in that moment is so piercing i love it i think i'd quibble a little on uh one of those scenes like if we have to break it down to the three the three great scenes that make the movie i would pick uh the the second two that you mentioned and for the first one not the laura dern divorce conversation but that opening that sequence it, it feels almost like a malick film that the voiceover and just watching the two of them at work and at play like together with their kid and like getting this spelled out idea of what the relationship is like and then cutting to the understanding that all of that is over and yeah. that this this beautiful like sort of tone poem kind of uh, description of what their relationship is and why they love each other is a depressing exercise in remembering that they used to love each other as the beginnings for a for a breakup. I I think that's so challenging and daring, and mm-hmm. it, it, it's like it's an emotional reversal on the level of the opening of Up. It's just a gutting leap from what a beautiful relationship to what a over relationship. Yeah, but and it, the fact it, that they don't actually say those that all that is a fake out in a way because Nicole refuses to read from her letter and uh, Charlie doesn't read from his letter and so they don't know. Uh, But it's booking at the end when when the letter comes back and I I think to speak to what you were just saying it's like yes it's gone but it it, it did happen and it was real and that's meaningful and they're all moving on from it but it was was a real thing. Another scene uh, as long as we're just cataloging great scenes I love the scene where Charlie first comes to visit in California and everyone's trying to trying to be normal about it, but at the same time they had to serve in papers, you know. Oh and, yeah, uh, it's it's uh, that's that's just a really great. I'm just an act of, of choreography. It's pretty great, but also I mean, when you have like you're not only Scarlett Johansson, but you have Merritt Weaver. Merritt Weaver and Julie Haggerty running around. You know, it's it's great stuff. I swear to God, I'm so like, the the ensemble cast of this movie. I just love so much. I mean, Julie beyond Haggerty. I mean, Julie Haggerty. God, thank you so much for casting Julie Haggerty. <laughs> I love her. She's always so funny and she's so distinctive alan alda like god thank you and ray liotta like it's just everything is so inspired and unexpected and you see a lot of actors you don't see that much anymore that are not given that kind of wallace shawn has some amazing moments too yeah yeah no i mean wallace shawn such a small role wallace shawn you expect in that world but but, but, yeah but but come on it's it's almost a fake out i like when when ray liotta shows up it's it's interesting because when these characters like are especially when adam driver's character is checking out a series of lawyers like there's always sort of a feeling of all right well i don't know this guy he's not super famous so we're not going to stick with him and then when he when he shows up with alan alda it's like oh well of of course he's found his guy like we're not just going to have him here for a minor moment but wallace sean kind of gives the lie to that like wallace Mm sean as soon as he shows up you're like oh he's going to be a major part of the movie and it's like no no we threw him in because uh, we have a few lines and we realized we could get wallace sean to do them and it would be just way funnier and you just you just kind of like understand him as a fixture of the New York theater scene. I sure, mean, he just, sure. He just immediately gives that a world authenticity. It was great to see uh, a lot of these actors in, in, in the movie. And, and, and it's interesting to see like, you know, that relationship, these little individual relationships, like the one between Charlie and Nicole's mom played by Julie Haggerty. They have a closeness. It's and, and sweet. It, it's sweet. And, and, and there's some really interesting specific details to the Julie Haggerty character, which is, you know, having to do with her own, marriage to a husband who who was gay and and who had, and yet she continued having a friendship or a friendly relationship with his lover after he died and i mean it's just i i feel like all of that is so real and her you know and even her perspective on it and the way that's changed that 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 was all real too i mean it's just it's so full of wonderful small observations this this movie and just i think he just knows one thing that's been a constant in, in Baumbach's work from Squid and the Whale on is is the fact of divorce, is the fact of, of families that are unconventional, that are discontinuous, and that it's okay, you know, and, and that weird relationships can form. I mean, you think about Mistress America, you know, that's about a relationship between two characters whose parents fail to get married. <laughs> I mean, that's a very interesting thing right mm-hmm. and uh the moment in all of his movies that touches me the most probably is that piano sequence at the beginning of the Meyerowitz stories with adam sandler and his daughter because you think about this is a song that was written a long time ago when they were all a family because it's like mommy and daddy and genius girl is the name of the song well mommy's out of the picture 
and that's what gets you at first. You're at first kind of affected by the fact that, huh, you know what? They're singing this song to each other. Mommy's on the picture. But then the other thing that strikes you is like, it's okay. <laughs> like, it's not something that either one of them is getting stuck on, you know? And they can still kind of appreciate this song that they've created together and kind of appreciate this moment that they're having before she goes off to college. And it's touching in that way too. So I just think he's kind of, you know, this accumulated experience and, and obviously a lot of personal things that have happened to him and his life is, 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 you know, all fed into this big vision. I also feel like Baumbach just comes back over and over to the idea of pettiness in his films. The idea that when people feel that they need something or, or when people do need something emotionally, they can be extremely petty in like these, these small and nasty little ways. And they can be aware of how petty they're being and still not be able to fight it. Uh, they can harm other people and be aware that they're harming other people and still not be able to fight it. Uh, and I just I think that that's such an interesting idea to explore. And here with Marriage Story, I'm thinking primarily of the Halloween scene and the the frustration of like, why won't he wear my costume? Like we had plans. Why can't we follow through with my plans? Taking this reluctant child out trick or treating a second time mm-hmm. because he's owed like he he needs this and he understands that. Everybody is going to see him as being petty and obnoxious, but he has to do it anyway. He understands that his his child is tired and doesn't necessarily want to do this, <laughs> but he has to do it anyway. And it, it feels so real. And you just you look at things like the uh, the composition of Hey You in Squid and the Whale, mm-hmm. or the Meyerowitz stories where the the siblings find out that uh, their sister was sexually assaulted, and they feel a burning need to do something about it after the fact, <laughs> even when she's telling them that's not what she wants, and that they should be listening to her, that they should be letting her process in her own way rather than demanding that they be allowed to do something about it. There's just this sense smash an old man's car. <laughs> And and Frances Ha is is all about petty needs and and somebody mm-hmm. like exploring her own petty needs and and unable to escape them. I just I feel like you could come up with a lot more examples, especially from from while we're young or Greenberg. You know, like Greenberg. Greenberg you talked about Margot, Margot at the wedding. Oh my God, these exactly. Are like, these are yeah. these are in some ways because maybe maybe I'm looking at it too small, and maybe the connection here is emotional arrested development and people working their way through it. But fundamentally all of these stories just have these moments of I want something in a childish two-year-old kind of way I want to skip dinner and eat ice cream and I can't stop myself from expressing that because it's something I need in a very raw way and I I think that just the way he keeps coming back to these ideas is is fascinating and I think there's a lot of integrity to him too in that he seems to actively resist ingratiating himself to an audience. He'll go the other way. He'll be like, let me see how much I can challenge, how, how much I can put people off, <laughs> you know, deflect their sympathies and challenge them to like characters even when they're not behaving uh, as you might want them to. Um, and there's plenty of examples here. I mean, the Halloween thing is a, definitely a good one. And there's another one where Charlie gets frustrated by um, the kid refusing to get in the car, not wanting to get in the car. And he, he swears, you know, he swears and yells at him and tells him he needs to get in and bleep, bleep, bleep. You know, he's just furious. So it's like these are he kind of steers right into those character flaws and uh and um yeah, i appreciate that because you know the we don't often get that we often get the opposite where it's like movies just want us so much to love the people in them it's so critical um and it's it becomes quite boring can yeah. we can we talk about who we love in this movie like i i, I know that now I can't remember if we've talked about it or who I've talked about it with, but the broad range of like reviews and responses that are like, oh, he's he's so terrible and the movie's so one-sided against him. Oh, she's so terrible and the movie's so one-sided against her. Hmm. Like people interpret uh, the movie as unbalanced, but seem to be completely divided over who it's unbalanced for. <laughs> do you do you guys see this movie as fair and balanced or is it slanted toward one of the characters? It's, it's an ink plot, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I I feel like it's pretty even-handed, but I feel like we spend more time with Charlie and attending to Charlie and, and, and concerning ourselves with what Charlie needs and how he's been hurt. It does take in, into account Nicole's feelings and Nicole's ways she's been hurt and what she wants as well. Uh, and to the point where, you know, just the, you know, she could come off as, come off as monstrous just by taking the kid to California 
possibly with the intent of establishing residency there. But even if it's not the intent, it is the result of that of that move. But it does, you know, it, it, it's. I think it's okay with her. I think it's okay with both of them. I think there's something about her that's not calculating. I mean, as you're saying about, it is a result of her wanting to go to Los Angeles and to pursue that part of her for herself that has been lost in this marriage. The result of that is that is is a residency issue but you don't see that as a, as a, like a shrewd heartless move on her part to kind of gain extra leverage in this others proceeding do. others others i just yeah i don't agree with that opinion. No, i mean others within the film presented as that as well yeah yeah well i mean that's another point about the movie too is that the, the, one of the central ideas of the movie is that the process of divorce you know brings out the worst in mm-hmm. the people who have to go through with it and what becomes difficult and what's the film ultimately finally achieves is two people finally you know getting to that point where they were supposed to be at the beginning writing those letters of like recognizing that this was somebody that they loved so much that they married you know and that they and who has these wonderful qualities that 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 haven't disappeared as a result of the marriage falling apart so if you can remember those things and that that's great but the, but the process of divorce really makes it hard for people to acknowledge each other's humanity for me at least though i mean i do see a bias in the film towards charlie and against nicole and in large part that's but just because of her narrative function like she keeps she keeps moving the goalposts and i don't think that we spend nearly as time much time understanding why she keeps moving the goalposts as we spend understanding its emotional effect on charlie the sequence where she sits down with Laura Dern is very explanatory and very helpful mm-hmm. in terms of unpacking where she is and why she does what she does. But after that, I feel like the movie kind of loses her a bit, at least up until the big confrontation. She keeps doing these things. Basically, she keeps breaking her word. She keeps saying, you know, we're not going to bring lawyers into this. We're going to do it uh, the easy way. And then she doesn't. She keeps saying, we'll do it this way and then changing her mind. She does weird, petty things that I don't think are supposed to come across as power plays, like getting their son a costume and taking him trick-or-treating and then making Charlie out to be the bad guy when he wants what he was promised. But we don't really understand necessarily why she's doing these things. I think there's a point in the movie where she becomes a little opaque and just kind of turns into a a straw woman of she's just going to keep making decisions that could be seen as very selfish and very heartless. And I like I don't think the movie ignores her humanity or her needs, but I do think it has her make a lot of decisions that we don't really understand that are extremely hurtful and extremely harmful. I think you're probably right in terms of balance, but I think what you end up gaining is point of view. You know, I can think about like if Baumbach or if the filmmaker becomes too obsessed with that question of balance of like, well, we of doing the he said she said thing and of getting getting it exactly schematically right that you just lose the kind of flow of the film and i think i think if we're we're given the fact that this is a film by noah bombach you know it's a personal film and however way you want to think about it that you know it's gonna you're gonna maybe spend more time with charlie this is is the bottom line and i and i think at the very least i think there's a a lot of time that is given to her to try to explain herself i mean we'll talk about it in comparison with kramer versus kramer but like she i think her her reasons for wanting to end the marriage are completely understandable and and interesting in modern in a way of just like here's somebody who's not an ogre really charlie but who has steered their lives you know entirely on his own you know ambitions i mean his his ambitions and his artistry has been kind of the guiding force and it's taken a lot away from her chipped away at it over the over the years and and uh, and she's trying to claim it back while she while she still can and all that felt very real i think yeah for sure well you mentioned kramer versus kramer we should probably actually shift on to making connections which we will do after this short break You always made me aware of what I was doing wrong, how I was falling short. Life with you was joyless. What, so then you had to go and fuck someone else? You shouldn't be upset that I fucked her. You should be upset that I had a laugh with her. Do you love her? No, but she didn't hate me. You hated me. You hated me. You fucked somebody we worked with. You stopped having sex with me in the last year. I never cheated on you. That was cheating on me. But there's so much I could have done. I was a director in my 20s who came from nothing and was suddenly on the cover of fucking Time Out New York. I was hot shit and I wanted to fuck everybody and I didn't. 
and I loved you and I didn't want to lose you, but I'm in my 20s and I didn't want to lose that too and I kind of did. And you wanted so much, so fast, I didn't even want to get married. Fuck it! There's so much I didn't do. <laughs> Thanks for that. You're welcome. Now it's time for Connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I think they have a lot in common. I think also Baumbach is certainly someone who would be aware of Kramer versus Kramer. It's sort of uh, definitely an influence into this film as, as well. Definitely. I mean, and, and I mean, it's absolutely fascinating on every level. I mean, we could maybe just start with uh, the legal aspects of, right of, of the movie uh, you know i mean because it, it is 40 years later yeah it, it seems like it's turned into sophisticated kind of like the wedding industry it's the divorce industry where the whole like these sophisticated mechanisms have grown up around divorce yeah and yet the the mechanic seems to be the exact same thing of the lawyer saying up front this is going to cost you way more money than you want to pay mm-hmm. way more money than you can probably afford and Basically, I'm going to have to be as cruel as possible. It's going to be gutting to you, and you're also going to have to spend your life savings on it. And, and then a character kind of has to, you know, swallow that. Uh, both both films like make a point of of having that scene of oh, this is going to cost you tragically in terms of emotion and also money. And both films are pretty interesting in the courtroom scenes in bringing up specific instances of a lack of fitness that reflect very badly on, yeah. you know, taken out of context or, or presented in yeah. without context. It, it, the other, it, but the other thing that's the other thing too, about it too, is that, is that you sense from all parties that they've gone way too far, that their mm-hmm. lawyers have gone way too far, but the stakes are so high because you're talking about custody of a kid that you can't do what your instinct is, which is to say, no, this is, you you that's too much to say that Nicole is has a drinking problem. That's too you're, that's too far. That's not really what how things really are. But if you weaken your case, you know, by objecting, then you lose something much more substantial, which is which is access to your kid. Yeah, I think both both of these films openly let the separated couple reconnect through empathy for each other because of what their opposing lawyers do. Like both of them have them kind of reaching across the aisle just in a. Yeah, I, no matter what we're going through now, like you're somebody whose emotions I used to care about and on some level still care about, and you're being hurt a lot by this outsider, by this stranger. And the fact that I'm paying them my life savings to make them hurt you mm-hmm. is immaterial to the moment of just wanting, kind of wanting to come for you. You know, we get to know the lawyers a lot more in this one as well. They they are collectively figuring quite prominently, but I think there's just sort of a general change of attitude toward the proceedings. Like, you know, it, it, it is the first, Kramer's Kramer is very much a man fighting against a system that does not want to award him custody because that's just not what it does. And this is uh, this is a different stage of, of divorce at this point as well. Divorce Inc. Divorce Inc. Uh, yeah, and, and, and I, I did, one of the things I, I appreciate about Marriage Story is, I mean, these are people who have to deal with the, this is what they do for a living. They deal with divorce, they deal with each other. Mm-hmm. And so and so they're scrapping you know, in front of in front of a judge uh, at the, for the highest of stakes, but then they're also quite chummy, and they're ordering sandwiches, and they're saying hi to each other, and asking about each other's why, why you know, spouses or something in the hallway. And I'm reminded of a one of my favorite bits from the TV show Homicide, uh, the one episode with Robin Williams. Do you ever see that yeah. episode? There's a bit where all the Homicide guys are just talking about the case, which is a very heartbreaking case, and they're just laughing and. You know, it's it's they're at their jobs and making jokes, yeah, and, and he wanders and he in, wanders in and yeah. he's just he's just utterly crushed by it. And of course, they're embarrassed, but at the same time, the point is like that's what they do for a living. You know, they're around this all the time. All they deal with is death, and so they're going to uh, the language they use is is not going to be would seem appropriate to people who are on the outside, right? But to the couple, it's the most one of the most profound things that's ever happened to them, and and for the lawyers, it's just another case to get through. Yeah, but at the same Which, time, I think there's humanity there and real connection. For I think, sure. I mean, I mean, you know, Laura Dern's character is you know an expert operator who knows all the angles, but. She also appreciates Charlie's play. She's, you know, she's probably this, you know, a, a smart, sensitive person. It's just she's also very good at this particular nasty job. Yeah, she's also both uh, competitive and a little hateful. I mean, we get that moment at the end where she's like, I made sure I got 55, mm. 55, 45 because I didn't want him to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's still competitive. She's still in this industry and as expensive as she is because she's cutthroat. Uh, and I, I think that... 
the film almost maybe spends too much time with her and too much time on her character in a way that maybe is a little imbalancing because she, I mean, she comes across, this is, this is a character that we would probably have like a full episode devoted to if this was like a miniseries or a TV show. This is a, a character that the story cares a lot about. And I almost feel like we know a little too much about her compared to comparatively how much we know about Nicole's emotions in the middle going. Like we, we know a lot about her, her sympathies and her feelings and her backstory and, and where she is at every given moment of the movie. And I think it's a really interesting like place for Bombac to, to be interested in focusing. But it gets to this question too, with her, with regard to gender roles, which is another connection between these movies because for her uh for laura dern's character you know there's a scene where she stops nicole from expressing maternal ambivalence uh because that's something that is always held against women and never held against men and i think that kind of accounts for that moment you were talking about towards the end where it's like well i want to win a little bit you know i got 55 45 i want to i i want it to win and there's something i think i think those elements are kind of connected in that in that character of just like there's a, there's some systemic issue that she is engaged in that, that that goes far beyond this one specific case and, and has to do with her mission i guess as a divorce lawyer who is thinking of all the time about gender roles and how uh what's expected of wives and mothers yeah she absolutely comes across as somebody who cares about nicole personally and her story personally but she's also fighting for women like in the abstract she's she is fighting for a a broad swathing ideal uh, that exists in her head and you know being being chummy with opposing counsel doesn't get in the way of the fact that like this is an ideal for her we could also talk about just depictions of day-to-day parenting, which this has a lot of, as well as Kramer versus Kramer. Um, and and that I think that maybe, if not an influence, at least sort of a uh, way it echoes um, Kramer versus Kramer is you do just get a lot of Charlie going about the routines of being a dad. And, and this time under, under trying circumstances, you get the feeling that he was more involved in the actual day-to-day parenting than Dustin Hoffman in Kramer versus Kramer. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, He's in a lot of situations that place that under stress. Um, I think it's very good. Narrative story is very good about showing how Henry falls into a new routine at his mom's, at his, at his grandmother's house. I mean, just, it becomes a new normal for him, and he adjusts very quickly because kids can do that. But he can't necessarily revert back to the way things were in New York. But I mean, what struck me is is like the scenes of them driving from lawyer to lawyer, and of course the Halloween scene <laughs> where yeah. where it's just. So much of parenting is about being frustrated and then feeling bad about being frustrated because you know your kid can only you know your kid has limitations because they're a kid. Um, and I think it's, this gets that right uh, in the same in much the same way that Kramer versus Kramer does. I think both of these films are very very interesting and very frank about the fact that kids can be pretty amoral. Like kids want what they want. Kids have a a very immediate and very simplistic need that doesn't get into the complicated nuance of. Uh, I'm feeling disaffected as a father because of this complicated situation that I'm going through that questions both my masculinity and my capability. Like the kid doesn't know that the kid sees his mom who he hasn't seen in a long time and, and runs to her and forgets about his dad for a minute. And it leaves Dustin Hoffman in a very raw place. The kid in marriage story has already been trick or treating and he's tired and he wants to eat his candy. Like he, he doesn't want to get in the car. Like he's not processing like all of these complicated adult things that we're seeing and in both cases we see fathers that just go kind of go to a place again it's kind of that pettiness but just such a relatable understandable pettiness of like my life has revolved around this child this child is such an important thing in my life and this child takes me for granted because they're a child and those moments of what the kid needs right now is not to support and validate you emotionally the kid just wants what he wants i think in both cases it feels like a really raw thing that you maybe don't see enough of in film. It's just that that pain of being a parent and wanting something from your kid that they're not really emotionally equipped to give you and that maybe it's not their responsibility to give you. Um, it is interesting. One of the things, uh, you know, this is getting us back to gender roles again, but I just, I, I, I really 
would you would you compare these two films and and how they deal with fatherhood specifically? It is interesting to see what that baseline is in terms of what's expected. You know, I mean, Dustin Hoffman is put in a position in Kramer versus Kramer where he has to learn how to do everything because he's mm-hmm. never he's never done anything. <laughs> you can't make a piece of French toast. Uh, whereas you know, Adam Driver, you know, Charlie is is capable of looking after his kid. You know, doesn't need Nicole to help him do that. He can take care of him. He can take care of business just fine. And so you have that, you at least have that as a starting point and not a complication, uh, which is that has to be overcome. I mean, the arc of Kramer versus Kramer is Hoffman's character learning to become a more fully rounded and competent caregiver, you know, because he wasn't before. Yeah. (laughs) And that's that's not the, that's not what marriage story is about. That's a changing attitude too, or where it's like you know the the subtext of Kramer versus Kramer, both within the film and then it's sort of the understanding of the audience. Nineteen seventy nine was like a dad who's also the parent, you know, and 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 you don't get that with with Marriage Story. I mean, I mean Three Men and a Baby that was seven years after Mr. Mom, Mr. Mom, yeah. yeah I mean, that, I those were those were after um, Kramer versus Kramer. Those was a, a co- stay at home dad? <laughs> question mark? Question mark? Question mark? <laughs> It's possible, <laughs> but now now it's now those are those are period pieces. Now you look sure. back and you say, I mean, I think it's. I wouldn't say that those roles have been so completely upended, but they're different. And it's it, not. It doesn't feel like science fiction anymore. No, no, not, not at all, not at all. But it is. It was interesting to see that contrast. I mean, I think, I think it's true. I mean, that that surely Baumbach knows this film well. <laughs> knows Kramer versus Kramer well and it was able to kind of use it as something to keep think elements of it to keep keep in discard and whatever on, on based on his own observations and experiences you know as a 21st century person I think another thing that these films have in common that's pretty interesting is both of them are, are pretty interested in creation Kramer versus Kramer spends a lot less time on on Ted's focus on creating advertisement, creating uh, art, but we we do keep getting back to the elements of his photos that need retouching, his uh, presentations that he's designing, his ad copy that he's writing, uh, the the various companies and like what they do with these things and how they care about them, and then in Marriage Story we kind of have that feeling of. Both of them are trying to create art, but is that art good in either case? Like we're, I feel like we're told over and over that Adam Driver's character is creating like big, important uh, art that's like well received on the indie scene and wins him awards and whatnot, and that poor Scarlett Johansson has had to just sublimate like all of her talent into helping make him famous. And then we kind of make fun of the TV pilot that she's involved in when she goes off and does her own thing. But both of them are kind of creators and both of them are pretty absorbed of in the importance of their act of creation. I think it's interesting that we see just a little bit of the play that uh, Adam Driver is doing starring his wife and it honestly doesn't look great. You know, it, it looks like a, a kind of insufferable it's avant-garde, you know, avant-garde black box poetry kind of thing. I think it looks okay. I'd watch it. Eh, I mean, I'd watch it too just to see what's going on with it. But I, I almost always think it's a mistake to show the art in a film that's about how the creation of art is so important because you're going to end up judging it one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I think the TV show is treated as, as a figure, of, an object of some fun, but it also is her ability, it gives her the ability to grow and, and, and by the end she's directing, which is a big deal. And, and, and that's, you know, it may not be the path that he would have chosen for her insofar as that character is even interested in his wife's creative growth, but it's what she needs. Yeah, it justifies that initial impulse at first, too, and mm-hmm. that, that, that she really did need to for this marriage to end, for her life to begin, or for her to more fully realize her life as she might have envisioned it before, and that he was not willing to, to compromise enough to let her explore. And we get the same thing with Kramer versus Kramer when we find out that Meryl Streep's character has gone off and become like what a, a fashion line designer. And she's actually making more money than than <laughs> Ted is. I One of my favorite like little subtle moments in the in the film is when she 
says what her salary is, you see him flinch just a little mm-hmm. bit because he knows she's making more money than him now and it, it hurts his masculinity. But it, again, it's the exact same sort of case of like, I needed to get away from you to find myself. And in this case, find myself means doing something creative and, and remunerative that's apparently valued by people enough to put me in a much more uh, stable place and let me create something that people care about. We should talk about custody and what it means in each of these films as well. Because in Kramer vs. Kramer, it is kind of, despite the fact that, that the law does award him some visitation rights, it is all-encompassing. It means, you know, this is the, the parent. This is the person who's going to raise the kid. And here it's about finding some kind of balance between them as well. And I, I obviously one seems more humane than the other, but it also is harder. I mean, it seems like it's a much harder arrangement to land upon, uh, something that, that's fair to everybody. And, 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 and sometimes what's fair to the kid gets lost in that a little bit as well. The marriage story is a much more complicated custody case, mm-hmm. even though the custody battle is not necessarily front and, front and center in the way it is in Kramer versus Kramer. I, I mean, feel like I, we learn the ins and outs of uh, how it's done a little bit more, though. In, in, I also feel in like one. In, in marriage story. No, yeah. Yeah. As I said in the previous episode, if they're going to live, if they're living in the same city and they're both, you know, active, committed parents, then an equitable custody arrangement seems pretty feasible mm-hmm. um, and not a contentious issue. Whereas in marriage story, it is an extremely contentious issue because it's like where where is this going to even live? Mm-hmm. You know, New York or L.A. I mean, that's huge to for the parents to be to be separated geographically. I mean, it's untenable, and so and so everybody's life has to change or one of the one of the two lives the the one either the father or the mother their their life has to completely change in order if they're gonna have any kind of relationship with their kid i feel like in kramer versus kramer they they do edge up to the idea that she's newly re-arrived in new york and there's no guarantee that she's not going back she found herself in california the impression that i get is that her her job and her center is in california and it it feels to me like the film is suggesting that much as she changed her mind about wanting her son, she's going to change her mind about living in California and move with him. I feel like Baumbach picked that thread up and just expanded on it and and made it much more overt. I feel like it's a threat in both cases. It's just a threat that's actually played out in much more detail in Marriage Story. And, and that, if anything, makes me even more convinced that he was using this as a basis. It feels like an unrung bell in Kramer versus Kramer that's like ringing long and hard in Marriage Story. I think also, circling back to another part of Baumbach's career, The Squid and the Whale does illustrate how difficult a shared arrangement can be even when you are in the same city. I know. Uh, and, and that's, <laughs> that is a nightmare joint custody. Right. Situation. And that's certainly closer to the period of, of Kramer versus Kramer than, than but, but think this about film. this. Think about what's what another just great Bombach detail in that is that, is that arrangement is something uh, that is entirely selfish on the father's part. Right. Mm-hmm. To, 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 I mean, that's, that's why it happens the way it does is because he, he wants to, uh, I mean, it has to do with suiting his needs and his like money situation and where he wants what he wants to do um, much more than it's good for the kids. So uh, that's kind of another little wrinkle because that because Squid and the Whale is about nothing if not the Jesse Eisenberg character being uh, you know aligning himself with the wrong parent, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, of, of embracing the 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 narcissism and misogyny of his father and, and treating his mother cruelly. And uh, so, I mean that's the kind of the arc of the movie. But um, yeah, we could have easily have done that as a pairing as well because. Best not to bring this in too much, but Squid and the Whale is based on his parents' divorce, and and this is inspired in some ways by Baumbach's own divorce, and and I think loosely, I think probably even more loosely than Squid and the Whale. Oh yeah. Is. But you know, he's someone who's kind of had both sides of this experience, which is uh, I think gives him an interesting perspective. Yeah, I mean, from the kid to the grown-up, I mean, mm-hmm. that's a big that's a big shift. I remember a lot less about how Marriage Story addresses the sort of the kids feeling outside of a few uh, specific scenes. But I do feel like in Marriage Story, the whole question of custody is maybe less about what's best for the kid, not even necessarily what's best for Ted. It's just about his understanding that this thing that's become the center of his life could be permanently lost. You know, the, the closeness that he's developed with his son. 
understanding the daily ins and outs of his relationship with his son, with his son's development, is all something that might suddenly become very distant and separated from him. Until that final scene where uh, Streep's character, like, flakes out on motherhood a second time and kind of proves that she's a a dilettante at all this and she doesn't know what she wants, there isn't really any indication that she's going to, like, neglect or abuse him. It's not, this is going to be so much worse for the kid, it's a tragedy. It's, I love my child and I'm not going to get to have this closeness with him anymore. Our relationship is fundamentally going to change. Right. And I think Mary Story addresses the fact that divorce is going to introduce change no matter how it's conducted. And um, it involves compromises on all sides. And the Charlie and Henry's relationship is going to be different after this. But to go circle back to the, the sort of hard-won optimism that Scott referenced, it could be good still. It'll just be different. Uh, and that's, um, you know, that's sort of the bittersweetness of, the, of this film that really works. And I think that's a quality that you don't really get for the Kramer versus Kramer. It is more of, oh, relief that that uh, that Dustin Hoffman wins custody of the kid. Yeah, it's, or, a victory. Or, it's this victory right. for one character and then the other one's sort of cast to the wind. And in this one, I think it's fighting to something like a draw. It's its own kind of victory in a marriage story. I just end up in a place with both of them. You know, maybe this is me just uh, focusing focusing in the wrong place, the wrong bit of attention. But uh, I just end up angry with both of these films that so much money was wasted on. In, in <laughs> Kramer versus Kramer, so much money, so much time, so much pain in order to get back to the status quo. In Marriage Story, so much money, so much time, so much pain wasted in order to get to where they theoretically wanted to be in the first place before the lawyers were brought in, down to a kind of like an, a more or less equitable place of stability, but a place of stability that they maybe could have had without destroying each other's lives and destroying each other's finances. But just on a very practical level, that would require charlie to realize he couldn't stay in new york yeah that's a pretty together. big and yeah that, that's, that's like he only... and this theater company that would be that would dissolve as right well. right it's no it's no it's the stakes are pretty high in that decision which is why you need the, those lawyers to come in and do their work well on on that you know we i think feel like we battled to a draw on on, on these films um, <laughs> i can't believe that you made me spend eight hundred thousand dollars on this podcast for us to just kind of agree in the end that these are both great movies yeah, they yeah, they are. Are. And that they're available uh, in some form too they are they are you know kramer versus kramer is widely available on streaming services it's also on dvd and blu-ray where it has a hilariously inappropriate cover <laughs> it does. Uh, i'm pretty happy these the kramers are very happy on the cover of the kramer versus kramer which I, I realize they just re- contextualize an image from the poster of the family you know in in happier times in a frame and which it's very you know the context is everything with that yeah. uh but marriage story is enjoying a brief theatrical run as we record this and will be on netflix december 6th we'll be right back with your next picture show Finally, it's time to catch each other up on the films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I want to reach back to something that I saw earlier this year, much earlier this year at Sundance. And knew at the time that I was working for a website that I was not really going to let me write about it. And now I'm at a different website that has already written about it, so I don't get the chance. So when I say that Honey Boy is one of my favorite films of the year, um, I'm saying that without really much of an opportunity to put a review out there that that says that. So you're going to get the... Uh, you're gonna, the, quote. you're gonna get the unfiltered uh, version version best movie of the year transcendent exclamation point uh shia labeouf as you've never seen him before tosh robinson no place in particular <laughs> this movie like shia labeouf has fascinated me for a long time I, I interviewed him when he was fairly fairly young i think still a teenager in person and i found him just really interesting at the time you know he he said up front like 
I everywhere I go, I'm adopting a persona like it's a persona that's talking to you right now. This isn't really me. And then he went through, you know, so many self-destructive cyclic phases and so much rehab. And then these strange art experiments that I found very compelling. And now we have him again in a movie that is expressly about what it was like to be him growing up as a child star and what it was like to deal with his father. And he plays his own father. And he is just about unrecognizable. It's one of my favorite performances of the year. Uh, Shia LaBeouf playing effectively his own father in this kind of fictionalized narrative about a child star in California, like working his way through hit after hit and being raised and managed by this kind of like irresponsible, ne'er-do-well, very opinionated hippie who thinks he's a great dad and is not necessarily a particularly great dad. Shia LaBeouf's performance in this, I think, is just, he disappears into this role. I have no idea if this in any way like looks or feels like his actual father, but it looks and feels like both a stranger and just a really well-realized character. And Noah Jupe playing uh, kind of the young version, kind of the 12-year-old version of uh, Shia LaBeouf, they create this relationship that's in a way reminiscent of the Kramer versus Kramer relationship. It's it's sometimes contentious. There's uh, sometimes, uh, you know, a young child detesting his father and seeing what he can get away with. You're seeing a child star who's acting out and who's kind of coming of age in this environment that lets him be older than he should be or can be. I think it's just really well nuanced, incredibly well portrayed, very emotional, and just a really interesting experiment of a film. Between this and Peanut Butter Falcon, which is a hit, I haven't seen it yet, have you? That was a hit? Yeah, it's a quiet, very quiet, Big art house hit. What about that? Yeah, I, it's, I've heard great things about Honey Boy. I'm really stoked to ca- to catch it when uh, when the screeners are. Say <laughs> 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 so LaBeouf's back is what I'm saying. It's in theaters right now, at least uh, in very select markets. I it'll be out further later on. But mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Some of us may have to. Uh, some of us may have to rely on screeners. I'm looking forward to watching it again when those screeners come out. So yeah, Honey Boy, uh, starring Shia LaBeouf, very unusual and interesting film. Uh, Keith, what's good for you? Uh, what's good for me is, is a qualified recommendation of an older film I'd never seen before uh, that I liked, but I kind of find myself wishing it was a little bit better, which was the 1979 version of Dracula. Have either of you guys seen oh, that? Wait, oh, the John oh, okay. Badham, Frank yeah. Langella, Laurence no. Olivier, Donald Plaisance uh, uh, adaptation. Okay. Um, it's good. It's it's clearly an attempt to do like kind of a big blockbuster post star wars post jaws version of dracula which is kind of at odds with the source material which was the stage play that franklin jealous starred in that really emphasized sensuality i mean this is this is young sexy franklin jella uh in the in this in this film as as a very sensual dracula it's a really good performance but it's played it's played out in like kind of expressionistic sets but the stage version was performed on sets designed by Edward Gorey that looked like giant Edward oh, Gorey wow. drawings. And I kind of wish there was a more radical version of this film. Uh, the most striking sequence is this uh, kind of blood-sucking consummation sequence between Dracula and, and, and the female lead, played by, by Kate Nelligan, that was conceptualized and executed largely by Maurice, Maurice Bender, who you know as the designer of James Bond title sequences for many, many years. <laughs> and it kind of looks like that. It kind of has this like this kind of neat 70s psychedelia look to it. Uh, I wish the film had been a little more radical in other ways as well, but it's really quite a good ad- adaptation and, and of, of Dracula. It's got its own thing going on. And plus, it's got that great cast. But what's interesting about it is, it is now is it's coming out on Blu-ray from Scream Factory in two versions. One is the version that people have seen before. The other is the exact same film, but it's in uh, John Badham's preferred color tinting, which is kind of like this desaturated, at times almost black and white imagery, uh, which is really quite different from the any version you've seen before. And um, kind of radical for a 1979 film. I can kind of see why the studio didn't want to go for it, but it's it's neat to have both options. So Dracula, 1979, I would uh, recommend it. Scott? How about you? What would you recommend? I want to recommend a, a pretty wild documentary called Cold Case Hammerskull. Oh. Have you seen this, Tasha? I haven't, but I've heard a great deal about it. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, so so here's the backstory on it. In 1961, Dag Hammerskull, who was the second 
ever Secretary General of the United Nations. Uh, he and 15 others were killed when his plane crashed over Endola, uh, northern Rhodesia, which is a country now known as Zambia. And uh, Hammerskold was known as an advocate, a strong advocate for newly independent African countries that were kind of coming out of the shadow of colonialism. And it was he was all about trying to support those countries. And uh, there was a situation going on in this breakaway state of Katanga that he tried to resolve through force and was 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 on his way to solve through a peace agreement when his plane went down. And it was attributed to pilot error, but of course there's been many, many conspiracy theories swirling around the case that it was shot down. And so this Danish director uh, named Mads Bruger and a Swedish investigator uh, named Goran Bjorkdal, uh, they get together um, to try to work on this case, which is quite old, as it says, cold case for sure. And he says at the beginning, you know, Bruger says at the beginning of, of the movie that it, he could be on to the world's biggest murder mystery or the world's most idiotic conspiracy theory. <laughs> and the movie really does feel like both at, uh, at once. It's very silly at times and it's speculation and there's like a scene where Bruger you know dons like this pith helmet is, and is trying to trying to dig into the actual site of the plane crash and it's kind of played out for its absurdity and there's, like, there's kind of this meta documentary element to it but at the same time there's a recognition of the context of this death of this um, man who had made his mission to be of assistance in, in, uh, to countries that were struggling to find their footing and and after independence and um and being sort of tragically shot down so the film is kind of managing a lot of different it's got a lot of balls in the air a lot of different tones happening and it's kind of wacky but also deep and serious in certain respects as well a wild ride it just came out on you know streaming services you, you pay streaming services though it is magnolia so i suspect it will turn up on netflix eventually because mm-hmm. i think a lot of i think there's a pretty solid pipeline between Magnolia and Netflix in terms of their features and documentaries and I recommend checking it out it's kind of a fun one Cold Case Hammerskold and that's it for this edition of the next picture show our next pairing will come out December 17th and 24th as a Christmas present to you Tasha what's coming up next we're getting our knives out Uh, Specifically, we're looking at Ryan Johnson's new movie, Knives Out, which is something like an ensemble comedy in the mode of Clue, which we talked about earlier this year, and something like a murder mystery, and something like a modern class struggle movie. Johnson starts off in a pretty familiar Agatha Christie cozy house mystery mode, then he completely subverts the genre in some fun ways. All of that made us think of his debut film, Brick, which also subverts a murder mystery trope and recreates it for a new era. In Brick, Joseph Gordon-Levitt stars as a modern-day high school student navigating a noir-style murder mystery in the mode of Dashiell Hammett, complete with hard-bitten private eye dialogue and familiar tropes and character types. It's a terrific movie, but it also makes a terrific bookend with Knives Out. So we'll look at two Ryan Johnson movies that upend old tropes and tell compelling murder stories coming up over the next couple of weeks. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Kramer vs. Kramer, Merit Story, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everybody these days? Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. Still trying to find time to actually write over there, but I've got a bunch of stuff coming up that I've lined up, and I'm going to have to start writing it one of these days. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott, what about you? You can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work in the New York Times, NPR, uh, Vulture. Uh, uh, I've written a lot for The Guardian lately, including a piece on Song of the South. You're the retrospective king. I'm the retrospective king. It's such a great assignment, so I'm very grateful to, for the, the Guardian to keep giving me these anniversary retrospective pieces to write because they're a lot of fun. Uh, I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog, and I want to call your attention again to the two-part 
two-volume Musings Anthology uh, featuring uh, some of the best work that we've run on the site over the last four years. It's available in, in uh, beautiful limited edition uh, versions with original artwork. It's a great-looking package. And, and uh, you know, I just give some of my favorite writers, including Keith Phipps, you know, free reign to just do whatever the hell they want. And, and that's worked out well. So, so, so there's a lot of lot of uh, nice little idiosyncratic corners that we're covering now, with these the, books. These would not make good Christmas presents for the film oh, lover in your life. They, yeah, they would. <laughs> oh, they would. Okay, well, yeah. they're good. Maybe, please, please maybe do. So, so, yeah, I think if you, you can go straight to the uh, store at oscilloscope.net and find uh, the books there. Our absentee co-host Genevieve Kosky is the deputy TV editor at Vulture, and you can find her on Twitter at at Genevieve Kosky. And as for me, I'm a freelance writer and occasionally editor, not so much lately, but I write for a bunch of places. I write for The Ringer, I write for Vulture, I write for Vangoria, I write for Polygon uh, sometimes. And, and uh, you know, I, you can find me all over the place. You can find me at Twitter at KFIPS3000. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake, Jakes, for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is a proud part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.